One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. It is I, the lovely Kit Chapman, and I am joined by the even lovelier Alina. Alina, who is our guest today and what are we talking about? Oh, you are such a charmer. I love recording with you. You just bring out the light in me and the happiness. Right, so our guest is just as lovely as the two of us, clearly. We have David Schroeder, who's a historian and host of the weekly Cold War channel on YouTube. He's here to talk to us about the notion of what is the Cold War. We're going to do lots of chatting, lots of randomness. You're going to do some science stuff, which I'm going to sit to the side and cower in the in the corner because I have no freaking clue what we're talking about. David, how are you? I'm doing excellent, and thank you very much for having me on. Uh, I'm I'm excited to be here. You guys, you guys actually helped get me through pandemic. Really? Um, oh, so what was several years ago at this point? Believe it or not, but. Uh, that's uh, not able to go anywhere except walk my dogs. And it was always history hack to keep me company. It was fantastic. So thank you very they, much. For they that. still haven't let me go. You know, please, someone send help. I'm stuck here. It's waving that uh, little uh, white flag. Save me. Uh, save me. Uh, I'll leave that one to Alina to address. So that's, uh... Everyone's accusing me of kidnapping people. So I'm like the wrong person to be talking here. Uh, by the way, please don't take that as actual fact. I'm not kidnapping people. <laughs> someone reports me to the police or something. So, do you know what? I was going to ask a really stupid question because before we started recording, I just wanted to poke you a little bit with a long stick. And that's my joy. That brings me so much joy. And this question is, who were the bad guys? Were the Russians the bad guys? Were the Americans? Who were the bad guys? In a true historian answer, everyone was the bad guy. No one was the bad guy. It depends who you are, who the bad guy was. Polish people. Polish perspective. if 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 you were Polish, then the, the then the Russians were the bad guys. Maybe not even the Soviets, but the the Russians were always the bad guys because that's a a natural state of being. It would seem for uh, everyone who lives in the who everyone who's Polish. But uh, but I mean, to, on a it it is a bit of a jokey question, but I mean, it really does elicit a pretty good can elicit a pretty good response. Everyone could be the bad guy. Everyone could be the good guy. It all depends on what chair that you're sitting in. If you're if you're part of the 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 an NVA soldier in North Vietnam, um, then the Russians are probably pretty much the good guys, and the Americans aren't. If you're in the U.S., if you're in part of the U.S. military complex, and you're stationed in Berlin, absolutely the Soviets are the bad guys. It's all a question of perspective. Like anything in history, it's always a question of perspective. Well, starting with perspective, um, I mean, the first question that's sort of written down, we we did a little bit of prep, is what was the Cold War? I'm going to shake that up a little bit. When did the Cold War actually start? Yeah, that's that is such a loaded question. I mean, that's and you can ask you can put 10 historians into a room and you can ask that question and 
I mean, you can come up with 15 different answers because that's obviously the way that the this is the way the profession works. There are there are people who make the argument um, that the Cold War started as early as 1917 with the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, I I can there's a case to be made for it. I personally don't buy into that necessarily. I think that both sides need to be aware that there's a war going on for it to really be a war. Um, a lot of people use 1945 um, sort of as with the end of the Second World War as sort of that that period. There's an argument to be made certainly for multiple years that happened prior to that. Um, I we for the channel anyways we conveniently use 1945 just because it's a it's a nice clean breaking point. Um, we obviously go further like earlier into the past to to address certain subjects and give background. Uh, lots of people will give 1947, 1948 um, as as starting points. 1947 does seem to be a really sort of a, a a common sort of acknowledgement that that's really where it is. Um, I can make a, I would like to make a pretty strong contention that 19, you could almost go as late as 1950 um, with uh, uh, NSC 68 document coming out of the, uh, coming out from the, uh, the White House um, and the start of the Korean War. I think that's a, to me that that's, I don't ever see dates going any later than 1950. Um, but I mean, that's, that's a pretty wide range from 1917 to 1950 with a numerous different compelling arguments to be made for any point in between there as well. And then of course the, the follow on question, I'm going to jump, jump right to it, Kitten, to cut you off. When did it end? And there's, there's people that are going to say 1980, as early as 1987 with Gorbachev's pledge of non-interference, um, in the, 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 the Warsaw uh, Pact nations. Uh, 1989 is often used as a sort of that that key mark. Berlin Wall kind of era. With the with the Berlin Wall, like you know, it's like the the semi-free elections in Poland. Can't forget about those, Alina. Um, follow the Berlin Wall and sort of the the end of uh, the acknowledged end of communism across uh, the the Eastern Bloc. Uh, 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, and it could be December when the flag actually comes down. But there's a, a case to be made for the coup, uh, the August coup that uh, tried to tried and failed. Com- almost comically to overthrow Gorbachev. And of course, then there's the more conspiratorial uh, notion out there that the Cold War never ended and it's been waged secretly all this time and it's now just re-emerging today in the present. So, I was going to say, I wouldn't say secretly at all. Exactly. <laughs> well, I was thinking exactly the same thing. <laughs> it's still open. I mean, come on. That's well, And, and there's, a, there's a vague case to be made for that. I personally don't believe that. I think that with any kind of historical event, you can always link, like, is is the Second World War just a continuation of the first? Uh, do you know what? I was go- about to say that. So Alex and I have a, a lean at Alex off occasionally. And she constantly will wind me up and say, oh, well, you know, your Second World War is total bullshit because it's just a continuation of the First World War. I, I can see the arguments for it. But I also agree with you. There has to be kind of like a bit of a stopping point and a continuation of other events. It's kind of just layered one on top of the other. So, no, there was a Second World War and there was a First World War. Whoever <laughs> thinks that, get the fuck out. That's So, based based on that definitive answer, yes, there is a, a period of the Cold War. We may be entering into a second Cold War. Um, hopefully, we can come up with, collectively come up with a better name than just Cold War II. Because, um, you know, let's get something snazzy, snappy going out there. I'll leave that to you guys to uh, to come up with. But, uh that would be nice just to uh, to do that. But I think 
yeah, that's 1991 is typically sort of that, that the latest date that we ever really see being bandied about is in terms of the uh, um, the for the end of the, the the first Cold War, anyways, before the onset of the the crazy 90s. So that's well, diving straight in there. I, I know we're kind of doing things backwards because we're talking a little bit about the end, but I want to help help out some uh, some students because I know that in the international international baccalaureate, yep. one of the questions is what is the reason that the Cold War ended. Um, is it the collapse of the Soviet Union? Is it something that the US did? So let's talk about the reasons this became a Cold War and the reasons that it ended being a Cold War. Poland, Poland. Um, po- okay, sorry, I'll mute myself <laughs> back again. Why Why did the Cold War end is, is an incredibly complicated question because um, there's no, like anything, there's no one single factor. It's a, a multitude of different threads that all sort of came together at the right time in the right place and all sort of happened in the right order and resulted finally in that 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 final action of uh, December 26, 1991, with uh, the, the Soviet flag being lowered over the Kremlin. Um, why? Like, where did where did that that demise begin? I mean, there, there are people that are. Literally, there are people that are going to go back to 1917 and the Bolshevik Revolution. That they're going to go to that. They're going to people. Other people will pick Stalin, like the the, the, the rise of Stalin as the as the that was the that was the first nail in the coffin. Um, I think there's a very compelling reason that's being put forward uh, recently that it was the uh, the oil shocks in the 70s and the fluctuations in oil pricing um, with the massive spikes in oil, uh, the price of oil. That allowed the Soviet Union to increase its spending, and then with the subsequent roll-off of oil pricing, it had to reduce all of its transfers to its allies, including places like like energy transfers to places like Poland. Um, and based on those budgetary shortfalls, it caused all kinds of ripple effects in society and like basically individual communities, whether they were in East Germany, in Poland, Hungary within the, the constituent republics, within Russia itself, um, began to really see the hollowness um, of the system. Um, and that sort of combined with a variety of other things all eventually ended up in uh, the uh, the collapse. It also required a leader like Gorbachev in Moscow um, to be who wasn't willing to use extreme force to uh, to suppress and repress and keep people in line so to say, and there's going to be arguments against that because of massacres that happened in the Baltic states and in Georgia and a couple of places in that, the, the dying days of the Soviet Union. Um, but largely, like, is there is there one cause that uh, that brought about the end of the Soviet Union or the end of the and subsequently the end of the Cold War? No, there's there's not one reason. It's a whole multitude of different reasons that all came together: cultural, political, military, all sort of acting together in concert um, that came together in just the right way. So. So if if it's if it's all kinds of things just happening at once, let's actually just put the sides into perspective, because one of the key things is people always bring up the ideology. There's the Soviet ideology. There is the the closed society, if you like, if you want to go into the philosophy. Um, And then there's the open society of America. And people always talk about that. But are these blocks that different, the West and the East? Or is it just imperialism reborn for the 20th century? I am, I'll be honest, I'm very much a proponent of the idea that it's, they're too, did they start this way? No, but did they end up this way? It's, it's very much two empires 
um, with different formats of empire, but very much two empires striving for control. And it's not an empire like sort of in the in in the British sense where there's the the monarch sitting and there's direct control um, over 25% of the crown and the sun never sets on the on the flag and all those things. Um, instead, it's much more this this um, neo neo colonial is a term that's sort of gone to the to the wayside. Um, and I can't think of the just off the top of my head, I can't think of the actual uh, the new expression that I'm supposed to be using. That's a much more accurate uh, expression, but it's a, a form of almost like soft imperialism, where it's it's there's economic and cultural control um, that's happening like through advisors, and it's there's still national independence in the the quote unquote new colonies, um, but they're they're very much heavily influenced by the power that are coming from one of the two superpower blocks. And I think by by the I'm not even say by the end, certainly by the the 50s and especially into the 60s, you're already seeing that type of relationship assert itself. Um, whether it's the the United States's influence in places like Taiwan, South Korea, um, uh, those are the two really big ones. South Vietnam, obviously, and the the that that's a whole South Vietnam like the whole Vietnam struggle is a whole other thing yet again. Um, but then you have the Soviets um, using their own. They have they have much more direct control in places in Eastern Europe like Poland or Bulgaria, Romania, less so in Romania at varying times. Um, but within that, there's still a degree of national independence, but there's definitely more control coming from Moscow. Uh, but then that you have the the attempts at influence more directly in places like Afghanistan later on in the late 70s. Um, and then places like the colonial decolonization process, where the, the Soviets are trying to extend their influence military, politically, uh, economically in places like Egypt, um, certainly in places like Ghana, um, the Congo, back and forth. There's lots of there's lots of different influences that are happening. They're trying to constantly get a, a foothold in Indonesia, um, promoting themselves as being pro-independence, but certainly trying to gain their own influence and impact there. So, Well, let's talk a little bit more about that, because if... If you asked anyone, where did the Cold War happen? They would probably talk about Vietnam, maybe. They would certainly talk about Korea. They would definitely talk about the Iron Curtain. Africa is probably not somewhere they would mention. So what's going on in Africa during the Cold War? There's tons going on in Africa. I mean, Africa is one of the the absolute hotbeds of the Cold War. So the Cold War, cold, the term, the expression Cold War really is a misnomer. Um, it's, it's a cold war in a place like in Europe and in North America. Um, and it's the idea that there's a war being fought without any real blood being shed. Um, except that that's, well, I think you guys let me know that I can swear a little bit. That's absolute. The, the fact, the idea that the cold war is, is bloodless. It is in certain places, but everywhere else in the world, the, the notion that it's bloodless is absolute bullshit because you've got constant, like there's civil wars and border wars, low grade wars couple of much bigger wars that are happening across South America, Africa, and all across Asia. The estimates of the number of people that have died in conflicts through the Cold War is upwards of 15 to 20, this is in direct conflicts, is 15 to 20 million. Um, and that includes places like Korea, Indonesia, Vietnam, Afghanistan, uh, Iran, and Iran, Iraq, the Iran, Iraq war uh, through the eighties, um, Congo, uh, Nigeria, the list goes on and on. Angola, Mozambique, and those, as soon as you get into Africa, that starts turning into these. These are much more. They're low intense. They tend to be low intensity wars, guerrilla warfare, 
Um, there, it's warfare that is very much driven by nationalism. It's national struggles of independence, of, of freedom. Um, and what ends up happening is that you get these two ideological superpowers in, in the United States or in the Soviet Union that are stepping in and providing support to like a group of rebels or freedom fighters, depending, again, coming back to, to your perspective, what side uh, what side you're actually on. Um, and they're coming in, they're providing support. And in exchange for that support, that group that's receiving the support is pledging their support in exchange for being a, a, a Marxist group. They're a, they're, they're a pro-Soviet group. So this it is ends a proxy up being, war, then. It is, 100%. Um, absolute 100% proxy war. But what we end up getting is Marxist rebels that are like, you know, being that, that are fighting in Angola or Mozambique, um, for example. And it's it's a national struggle. It's a nationalist struggle, which doesn't really jive with the whole idea of like, you know, the fading away of nationalism from actual Marxist Leninist like you know, philosophy, Marxism, certainly. Um, but then you get this like this weird ideology that gets bolted on top of a of a nationalist struggle. Um, to give a veneer that it's that the Cold War is actually an ideological struggle. The the Cold War was probably it's it's ideological in name and very much empirical imperial and nationalistic in nature. Um, that's that's very much a the undercurrent that uh, that you see throughout throughout the period um, in terms of how how the war is actually being fought outside of Europe and North America. Well, let's let's just continue with that theme, because there are two questions that emerge first and foremost. The first is that all of the countries you just mentioned um, are ex-colonial countries. They've just shaken off the imperialism of either Britain or France or Germany, or some European power. Um, and we're seeing groups automatically sort of almost flocking to another you know, neo-imperialist kind of support. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Sort of, is that something that people are aware of? And as a follow-up to that, is this just lip service? Are people just wanting to get into power, and they are pretending to be Marxist or pretending to be capitalist? Uh, for that, in terms of that second question, Kit, yeah, absolutely. That's this is my opinion, and there's, I mean, like any, like anything, there's a good contention to be made on both sides. Uh, I very much see it as people realizing what the avenue to power is. They they may have a, a base belief in it, but at the end of the day, um, it's very much about very much about like taking your own group and putting themselves into a power position um, and making sure that they can hold on to and maintain that power. Um, and it's interesting because in places like in Africa and in certain places across Asia, you see things breaking down across uh, ethnic lines, um, whether it's ethnic tribal tribal lines or clan lines, depending what what society in that you're talking about um but it's it's not that you know that that one particular group is going to be exclusively marxist leninist in their belief it's it's very much ideology doesn't work that way um it's very much that these things break down along clan lines um and it's about power 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 brokering power sharing you know it's like usurping power whatever that happens to be um yeah so that's that's i mean that's certainly how i would address the the second question, and I got going there, and I've forgotten what the first half of your question was there, Kit. So. Uh, the first half of the question was regarding um, shaking off pre-imperialism. So, you know, these are all ex-colonies that are just finding their feet. I think a lot of a, a lot of that has to do with the, the struggle of decolonization, where 
I mean, there may be hundreds of years of uh, economic and political structures that are fought against over, you know, it's like it could be a five-year period, a decade, two decades, whatever that happens to be. And it could be done through peaceful means, like it was done in Ghana, uh, formerly Gold Coast. Um, and it could be a much more violent struggle than like something like that happened in uh, across the former Portuguese uh, African empire in places like Angola. Um, but suddenly, like, you know, it's like there's this this struggle that happens and then you're independent. And as an independent nation, all of those structures that your society and that has been built around maybe not be completely gone, but certainly as a new independent nation looking to distance themselves from the former uh, imperial uh, master. Um, so there's an effort to try to shake things up, and that that often causes a lot of economic hardship and a lot of economic problems in terms of that shakeup as things are being realigned. Um, and anytime that you see an economic shakeup like that, it's very, very common to see political powers start to shift as well. Um, hardship, economic stability doesn't tend to cause a ton of, this is a broad statement and I'm going to have people yell at me about this, but economic stability doesn't tend to create a ton of really tumultuous political instability. Economic instability absolutely leads to political uh, instability um, as you know, new lines get drawn in the sand and people like start trying to trying to gain advantages over others so i think it's very telling i mean uh, if anyone doubts that look at the flag of mozambique which is an ak-47 a hoe and a cogwheel i mean it's about economics and it's about power 100 percent. that's uh and mozambique and angola um are i think are in the english-speaking world certainly are very much overlooked um wars of decolonization that went on for decades um the actual war of independence was could have been relatively short but then civil wars that that erupt afterwards because groups that that had a, a common a common alliance disparate groups that had a common alliance to overthrow the colonial leader suddenly the colonial masters kicked out and now those groups that are still there are now fighting for fighting for the power amongst themselves um and that's where you start seeing different support coming in from the United States, coming from the Soviet Union, or via proxies. Cuba was a huge, Cuba had combat troops on the ground in Angola. Um, and I think that that's something that people may be aware of sort of in the back of their heads, but it's actually really easy to forget just the extent of of Cuba's proxy war. Um, we always, in my mind anyways, I always think of Cuba. Well, Cuba was a satellite Cuba was this like Caribbean satellite state of the uh, of the USSR, except that Cuba was also doing its own thing and sending its own combat troops overseas um, and getting it getting itself involved because it didn't think the Soviet Union was necessarily doing enough to promote national independence, uh, national liberation struggles. Um, so it turns into this this proxy 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 wars. It's uh, really quite interesting to see how all that breaks down and breaks out. So I'm gonna jump in before Kit starts speaking. <laughs> so I want to change the conversation a little bit more towards the East, especially talking about something that's really important now, like right now, and that's the idea of China and Taiwan. I literally just recorded two long hours um, with Jonathan Clements talking about Taiwan, talking about modern day politics and obviously the history. But it's also Taiwan is really important during the uh, Cold War at this point. And all of these kind of, it's like this ripple effect that goes back hundreds of years. 
and it just continues over and over and over. And there's also quite a bit of a breaking point in the Cold War. And it also becomes important, especially in 1949, because it's where all the Chinese officials kind of like escape to before they move on a little bit more. So how important is Taiwan, especially in the modern day context? Taiwan, Taiwan's a really interesting case through the Cold War. Um, and it's, I think a lot of, and again, I think like sitting here in 2023 and looking back, um, for a long time, I think it's pretty easy to forget that for many decades of the, at least several decades of the Cold War period, Taiwan actually held like what we think of as Taiwan, the Republic of China held the, the Security Council seat in the United Nations. It was, it held a veto, not, not Beijing. It was Taipei that held that, uh, that held that veto. Um, the, the Korean War only happened because the Soviet Union, the Korean War only happened the way that it did because the Soviet Union walked out of the, um, the Security Council, uh, while a vote, a, su- a surprise vote was being, uh, conducted, um, in, and the Soviets were protesting the fact that it wasn't Beijing that was represented on the Security Council. It was actually the Republic of Taiwan. Um, there's two different strands of, of communism that, uh, that are occurring between Moscow and Beijing. And again, in the West, this can sometimes be overlooked. Um, this, this idea that monolithic communism is the expression that, uh, that keeps getting bandied around. Um, and it's really easy for policy and it's, it's convenient for policymakers through the Cold War to think of, and I'm, I'm looking at Washington specifically, but it's very convenient uh, to think of monolithic communism that Moscow and Beijing obviously are walking in lockstep because they're all communist. Except that after 1960, they absolutely hated each other because Mao thought that Khrushchev was literally was effeminate and not aggressive enough. Khrushchev, who put missiles into to Cuba and for 13 days thought like everyone thought that was going to break up the world, he wasn't aggressive enough. Um, Mao was all in in terms of pressing the button and like you know destroying the world in terms of advancing um, global revolution. That's so China ends up then from 1960 onwards. Um, being very much separate, separated from the Soviet Union, um, and isolated on the global stage in a lot of different ways. Um, China's doing its own, uh, doing its own thing domestically. Um, and that's like the cultural revolution, which, you know, referring to it as going, doing your own thing. Um, is it grossly underselling the absolute horror of what the cultural revolution was? Um, but by the late 1960s, what you have is a very calculating president in Washington looking to see how he can gain an advantage over the over Moscow, and he's looking towards Beijing as that uh, as that avenue to uh, um, to try to gain gain more of an advantage uh, over Moscow. And so Kissinger and then Nixon go to China and the opening up of China, and that turns into this really big thing, obviously in the present day, because the the rise of China as an economic giant happens that stems out from that that american i don't want to say the american opening but nixon going nixon going to china and sort of bringing china into not necessarily into the western fold um, but certainly willing to work with the um with the americans um willing to be friendlier with the west as a bulwark against the soviet union and it causes this rise of china it actually leads to Taiwan having to give up the seat um, and the Security Council give that give that to Beijing, and Beijing still continues to hold the uh, 
the, the seat in the Security Council. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That result of, of looking for a Cold War advantage obviously has re very much rewritten um, what, the, what the world looks like today or it's written what the world looks like today as China is a global player, China certainly as a, as a growth power looking to assert itself more aggressively um, and more forcefully, um, certainly in its own, its own region, but also further overseas, whether it's in, you know, whether it's in Africa or whether it's across the Indian ocean um, and growing lots and lots of money around in lots of different places. So that's uh, China. China's a really fascinating and very often overlooked. Um, theater but certainly illustrate to me certainly illustrates the idea that you know it's, it's the butterfly effect you do one little thing here and it turns into this massive big thing somewhere else and that's that china is a great example of that to me so we've spoken a little bit about the the sort of the i don't want to say lesser states because that's not quite right but sort of the smaller players in terms of the soviet bloc we've mentioned cuba for example certainly china at the time was seen as a lesser player than the ussr but all of this was informed by different factors. So the people that were making decisions, particularly in the early Cold War, did not grow up in the Cold War. They grew up in the previous generation. And so how did previous events, um, and we started alluding to this right at the start with saying that the Second World War was a continuation of the First World War. Um, how did previous events affect the Cold War as it shaped different countries? It's a great question. The Cold War doesn't particularly start to form in the way that we think of it as um, until the until the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950 with the North Korean invasion of the South. Prior to that, it was there was lots of there was there was espionage that was happening, like you know, it's where you get the Cambridge Five coming like to the fore. There's the I mean, for anybody who's seen Oppenheimer, there's like you know, sort of the Klaus Fuchs, the nuclear trials. HUAC is sort of starting to kick off in the states in terms of. But there's not a real idea of like you know what the this Cold War is going to look like. Is it going to be proxy wars? Is it going to be you know all out war kind of thing? And then the Korea happens in 1950, um, and there's very serious consideration within the I'm going to say the U.S. administration, but it's very much General MacArthur in, uh, in sitting in Tokyo. There's very much this streak of this is this is a full on war. It's backed by Moscow. We have to use nuclear weapons. And it's at this point that I think the Cold War really starts to take shape in the idea that it's not going to be the idea is to not fight it as a full on war where it's like a conventional where everyone's throwing everything they've got at each other, similar to how the Second World War is being prosecuted. Um, and instead, it's a decision to keep things to a more limited scale wars, much smaller, smaller theaters, smaller comp, smaller, smaller impacts, terrible impacts for the people actually being you know, bombed out of their homes and whatnot, but 
not letting things escalate and spill over borders. Um, and I think that's really, there has to be like an effect of politicians who had either had, had both directly fought, directly fought in the first world war. Um, and then certainly were making political decisions through the, to the second world war. The second world war had only been over for five years when Korea broke out. Um, in a lot of cases, it was a lot of the same senior leadership, um, that was, uh, in place in certainly Stalin was certainly still in place. Um, there's a this lot wasn't of the... political though. I mean, MacArthur famously was removed from Korea for his advocacy of going even further. Um, Patton was talking about recruiting uh, former Nazis to defend against the Soviet bloc. hundred percent. Um, MacArthur is a really MacArthur is sort of this this, and he's sort of the the test case in terms of all this, where he's advocating for he's advocating for the use of nuclear weapons. But the politicians, are, including Truman, are letting him advocate for the use of nuclear weapons. There, there isn't anybody telling him that he can't do this. He's removed. MacArthur's removed for not following orders. It's not removed. He's not removed for advocating for the use of nuclear weapons. Um, there was a continued and ongoing debate in terms of what they should do, like how how Korea should be prosecuted, how it should be should should it be widened to expand to uh, to try to to quote unquote liberate China from from the the Reds. I mean, it's such a hokey thing to say. It sounds I sound like a 1950s propaganda film, but you know, it's like to 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 free like you know, it's like to free China from like you know the evil Reds. Um, and to do that, we have to nuke half of Manchuria to to do it. Um, but it's it's at that point that you see somebody like Truman, who actually makes the he makes the decision that you know what, no, this is this is too far, this is too much, this is risking too much. Um, and the sort of the shape that the Cold War is going to take very much happens in Korea with this decision to keep it limited, um, to not involve, basically not throwing everything in the kitchen sink at the enemy, um, maintaining. Well, that's fascinating, though, isn't it? Because Truman was the guy who dropped two nuclear bombs on Japan. Absolutely. And at the time, we're looking at first lightning was 1949. The Soviets had only just started to get nuclear weapons, and first lightning was a copy of the U.S. bomb. It wasn't like, I mean, I know that they were far more developed in their own own sense. So this idea of it being a nuclear conflict probably hadn't fully emerged. The Americans were still very much in the ascendancy. From a from a nuts and bolts perspective, it was never going to be a, a back and forth nuclear conflict anyways. The Soviets didn't have enough weapons to, to nuke. This is, this is a very cold and callous and sort of on paper type of response. But the Soviets didn't have enough nuclear weapons or deliver or systems to deliver nuclear weapons than to 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 irradiate more than a few cities like they had a very small nuclear arsenal at the time it took a, it took a decade to come close to any kind of parity with the united states and even then they still lacked delivery systems they might have had the warheads but you've got to have the, the missiles and the bombers to be able to actually deliver the nuclear warhead or it doesn't really do a whole lot um so the the idea that the united states chose to not prosecute it as a nuclear war. That's that's a conscious decision to not pursue nuclear weapons as a battlefield as a battlefield means. As you say, it is really interesting that Truman made that decision. Um, and I think that's a that's a very much a facet of an evolving and changing view of what the atomic bomb and then later the, the super that the uh the, the hydrogen bomb what they actually were. Um, at the time that they were at the time that they were actually dropped in 1945, 
they weren't necessarily thought of as being these life-altering weapons or like world-changing weapons. It was just that they were one single very, very big bomb. That was very much the philosophy that the military looked at them with. Um, and frighteningly enough, there were certain military leaders like Charles LeMay um, that continued to hold that viewpoint until his death in the 90s. Um, that they were, you know, it's, I mean, Dr. Strangelove is a great example of that. But um, I mean, Edward Teller is the classic Dr. Strangelove, who, as you say, yeah. did the hydrogen bomb. That's 1952. So it's not that far after the Korean War. Yeah, that's uh, it. I mean, the Korean War is still going on while the super is being being developed and, you know, everything like that. So it's it really is interesting to see where that that there's this starting to this, this shift in perspective and shift in terms of what the use of nuclear weapons could possibly mean um, and all those things that are happening within a really short time. And it's, as you said, and I think it's a really great point to make that it is it's the same people that made the decision in the first place that are then walking. They're not walking back their decision, but they're actively choosing not to use them and it's not out of fear of retaliation that's a that's a very much a conscious choice to not want to use nuclear weapons better realization a better understanding of in, in terms of the what they're what they're capable what nuclear weapons are capable of doing and what they actually do to people and to to humanity in general so so we've been talking about pretty much the cold war happening around the world china africa cuba Korea, Vietnam, all of that. But what about Europe itself? We've completely omitted that in this conversation. Was it possible that they could have turned from a cold war more to a hot war at all? Was there that chance yes. of that happening? Yep, absolutely. And there, there, there were incidents um, that that happened. Uh, Nineteen, what was the date? Nineteen sixty, the nineteen sixty one Berlin crisis. Um, several months after the, the Berlin Wall had gone up. And at that point, it was really more, it was less of a wall, more just a lot of barbed wire fence. Um, but as the Berlin Wall was being constructed, um, there were, so for those who might not know, during, during the Cold War in Berlin, Berlin was never part, was never administratively part of Germany. It was considered, and throughout the Cold War, it was well, not throughout the Cold War, until the, the 70s, it was an occupied city, actually throughout the Cold War. It was an occupied city, and it was occupied by the four the four major powers um, from uh, the occupation at the end of the Second World War. So you had a the so your Soviet sector, your American sector, your British sector, and your French sector. And the uniformed personnel from any of those four occupying powers were free to cross the border into the other's sector, um, as long as they were properly in uniform and carried proper identification. But most importantly, they needed to be in uniform. They were free to cross, and border guards weren't weren't allowed to stop them. So October 1961, the U.S. head of mission, a man named Alan Leitner, was crossing from West Berlin, uh, the American sector, crossing over to East Berlin because he had tickets to go to the opera. Um, and he was stopped by a border guard and who refused to allow him to cross because uh, Leitner refused to show identification because he didn't need to because he was in proper uniform. And this so this this egregious action so outraged um, that uh, General Lucius Clay, um, General Lucius Clay, look him up. He's a fa fascinating, fascinating character. Um, General Lucius Clay um, decided that this was absolutely an unconscionable act, and with the support of uh, the occupying powers, 
and the Axis occupying governments, including Washington, they rolled tanks up to the border. And the Soviets, of course, saw tanks rolling up, so they responded in kind. And there was a multi, there was a five-day standoff with Soviet and American tanks, um, not more than 50, 30, 40, 50 meters away from each other, pointing, barrels down, pointing at each other. Um, and the world really did stand, like at that point, stand on the brink of potential potential full-on full, full on war between the two. If somebody had had an itchy trigger finger, some, some, you know, something misfires, anything, anything could have happened. That could have been a full-out war that happened right there. Cooler heads eventually prevailed. Tanks roll back to barracks. Everything sort of calms down. That's that's sort of considered to be the the sort of the the potentially the hottest uh, the hottest moment in Europe at the time. There's and that that was very public. If you go, if you go to Google um, and just Google uh, 1961 Berlin crisis, um, there's some really amazing and really frightening pictures of uh, of Soviet and American tanks barreled down at each other, like facing off across barbed wire because that's what the Berlin Wall consisted of. Um, and that's that's sort of the, the, one of the the high points. The high point might not be the, the correct word, low point, let's say. Um, but then there's there's other incidents that, that happen, like throughout the Cold War that don't ever really get attention. Um, there's, you know, the border crossing well, accidents that happen. There's like weird little alerts. There's, there's, there's accidents that happen. Any of those accidents without cool heads prevailing could have turned into a shooting war. That was always the risk. But cooler heads prevailed, training prevailed, like all those things on both sides. I will, I'll certainly add to that. Um, and we all miraculously survived the Cold War. So, and this is why you don't go to the opera. Like, if you, <laughs> you almost ended the war. So, I was actually going to mention this because I was going to give you a list of of different little little flashpoints during the Cold War and when could it have become hot. Um, and sort of ask you, so because we're running out of time a little bit, I want to give you like a, a, a sort of a I don't know one out of ten maybe scale. So is Berlin Crisis the ten out of ten? That is how close we came. Um, Berlin Crisis often gets forgotten. I would probably give Berlin Crisis about a a, a nine, okay, like a nine out of ten. It was it was pretty like both um, NATO and the Strategic Air Command, um, which was on twenty four hour nuclear alert, like airborne alert. They were both raised like raised their defensive levels. In 1961, um, it one like an, an accidental misfire and could have been Doctor Strangelove and the B-52s are flying in. So, well, falling straight on from that, 1962, we have the Cuban Missile Crisis. Cuban Missile Crisis is probably the absolute closest, definitively, um, that a conscious decision could have been made to go to uh, to a to convert from a hot from a cold war to a hot war um 1962 is like that those 13 days in october are absolutely in my opinion the the that that was that was the closest that that we ever came to being That's consciously to being consciously eradicated because there's been lots of other little like incidents and accidents that happened that could have accidentally resulted in us all being incinerated so. Well, indeed, like people, for example, very cool heads realizing that no, the US yep. are not launching nuclear attacks at us, which leads me to the next one. And I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. Uh, 1983, Stanislav Petrov? Indeed. <laughs> the man who saved the world. The man who um, saved the world. 
Absolutely. Uh, 1983, Stanislav Petrov is a lieutenant colonel uh, in the, one of the, the, the missile, strategic missile forces with the Soviet Army. Um, his computer system, which had, was relatively new at the time, uh, detected a limited early launch coming from uh, the United States, uh, coming from the West. Um, but something and his or his orders would be to um, to, to inform, seek authorization and fire. That was his and took to launch his battery of missiles. Those were his orders. He didn't think that it seemed right that there was a limited launch and he refused to follow through on his orders. He was cashiered afterwards um, and he lived the rest of his life. He was he ended his military career that day by doing the right thing. Um, but it. It didn't make sense. And it turns out at the end of the day that it was uh, the, the computer system. I think it was picking up. I can't remember if it was a flock of birds or if it was picking up sunrise, just the, the sun it, coming it over the horizon. Red balloons. That was what it was. Yeah, absolutely. That's, <laughs> uh, it did result in a fantastic NATO song. So, you know, it, it gave us that at least. But uh, um, but that type of incident wasn't the only the only incident. There were like several, several incidents that have been made public since that happened with the US um, early detection system. Um, there was a somebody somebody loaded a training tape onto the live system at NORAD headquarters at Cheyenne in Cheyenne, Colorado. Um, and the training tape obviously simulates a full launch coming from the Soviet Union. Um, and the response could very well have been full launch and retaliation. That uh, 15 minute warning uh, to the US. It's only four minute warning if you live in uh, you know, live in the UK. Um, you've only got four minutes if you live in the UK to make a decision what you're going to do. 15 minutes if you live in the US. Not a lot of time when you actually stop and think about what you have to do in that like you know in that 15 minutes. Um, but cooler heads prevail. Something doesn't make sense. Something doesn't quite jive right. So some people stop. And they actually like, investigate it, and they don't just go to the like hit the panic button and you know turn the keys. Well, moving away from Matthew Broderick, we're going to go to a more conventional <laughs> um, war system. Able Archer sticking in 1983. What yep. do we think of that? Able Archer is because so much of that data from, or so much of that that documentation from Able Archer is still classified. Um, and the Soviet Can you just stuff. explain what Able Archer is before we... Before so, so, so Able Archer is the specific name for a specific training exercise that was being conducted in, I want to say it was November 1983, um, uh, where every year the United States ran um, mission uh, training exercises, um, something called Reforger, which is Return Forces Germany, uh, where most US, most U.S., there was garrison troops, U.S. garrison troops uh, that were stationed in Western Europe, um, but most U.S. forces would have been stationed in the United States. And in the event of the balloon going up, uh, 99 of them possibly, hopefully not. Uh, the idea was that there was this massive airlift operation that would be conducted, and battalions and battalions and divisions of troops would be airlifted from the United States into Germany. Um, and they ran this as a training to, to meet up with like stationed vehicles and equipment that was uh, that was left there. And this was this was an exercise that was run every year. It was being run in October 1983. But what changed with this one is that they were running a nuclear it wasn't a live fire, but they were running a nuclear training um, exercise attached to the end of it. And what was different about this one is that they were practicing for the first time. They were practicing radio silence, communication silence, and supposedly 
they were involving the White House for the first time, which set a whole bunch of alarm bells off in Moscow. And you have Andropov, um, Yuri Andropov as the, the premier at the time, who was uh, in the process of slowly dying. Um, but he was also an inc- incredibly, incredibly paranoid. Um, and with that paranoia, when like, his, like he's got his intelligence agents, his KGB agents and what and GRU, and they're all feeding all this information back to him about what the what the United States is doing in terms of these training missions. And it's those two things at the end that suddenly flip, that tip off. And he reads that. And there's a lot of the, the senior leadership uh, in the, the Soviet military that sort of read this as, well, if they're going to launch uh, like a preemptive strike, this is how they're going to do it. They're going to do it under the guise of a training exercise. Supposedly, the U.S. has absolutely no idea that the Soviets are reacting to this. They think that they're, they're carrying on like it's just a training exercise. The supposition, and there's conflicting data that exists out there as a result of still a ton of classified documents, certainly from the out, from the, I'm going to call it from the Western side, and a very, very limited to no access on the Soviet side uh, to any of these documents. Um, there's the there's a possibility that the Soviets actually loaded nuclear weapons onto um, aircraft stationed in East Germany, which, if it did happen, was the only time that it happened uh, during the Cold War. Um, if if that is the case, that was as clo- that that we know of that is as close as the Soviets ever came to pressing the pressing the button and launching a a nuclear strike first. I was going to say fantastic. That's probably not the right the word to use uh, in this particular instance. Um, I'm going to give you one one last one, and this is from the realms of fiction. And I just thought I'd have a little bit of fun. Um, Tom Clancy, Red Storm Rising. Um, fantastic book. Could you see fun. that? Is that plausible in your mind? When I first read it, when I was a kid, yeah, absolutely. That's uh, I am uh, I am I firmly believe that. Um, whether this is good or bad, that Tom Clancy and Microprose video games, for those of us of a certain vintage out there, um, uh, those are the two things that really sort of sparked my initial interest in the Cold War in the first place. And I really haven't, it's it's held a, a place of affection in my heart since. Um, the quick answer to that for any, I, I'm going to, I'm going to work on the assumption that everyone's read the book. It's, it's essentially a, an, an American fictional account of how the third world war would play out if you're interested in the cold war you've got to have read red storm rising i mean it is the classic book absolutely um do i think that it would have ever played out that way no absolutely not because nuclear weapons would have been used there were very there were very few u.s plans that didn't involve at least the use of tactical nuclear weapons um to blunt uh an, an initial soviet onslaught the Americans never had enough garrison, especially after 19, the ni- mid-1960s in Vietnam. The Americans never had enough uh, U.S. Uh, troops on the ground um, or even allied troops on the ground to be able to blunt a Soviet uh, Soviet defense. Oh, the come on was, now. They had, they had Elvis in Germany. Like, Elvis could have stopped at least a couple of divisions. Just would have swung his hips around a couple of times and the T-55s just fall apart. <laughs> yeah, that's this this whole idea that uh, that... The, the war was going to be fought as a, as a strictly convention by a strictly conventional means was never the reality. There was always the plan that there was at least going to be tactical nuclear weapons used um, to blunt any kind of Soviet offense. Um, and then 
if one side uses a nuclear weapon, well, the other side has to use a nuclear weapon. And then it just goes back and forth until everything escalates. And then you get, you know, full on, uh, full on uh, nuclear war. There's a really interesting, some really interesting passages from Daniel Ellsberg's, um, I think it was his last major book, The Doomsday Machine, uh, before he passed away. I was written, I think the book was like 2017, 2018, um, before he passed away last year, or maybe it was earlier this year. Anyways, uh, talking about his time as an, as a nuclear analyst at Rand, um, and his surprise in the early, yeah, it was in the early sixties when he made the discovery from talking to Navy and Air Force and even Army personnel that there was no U.S. military plan that involved any kind of limited nuclear offense. It was always red light, green light. It's if peace, if peace exists, then no nuclear weapons. If war exists, full launch. That was always the plan. David. We Terrified sit, yet? No, but we could sit and talk about this forever. We've reached I could. time. So we're going to have to get you back on to do a little bit more because we've covered so many different topics today. We've just gone literally on the pendulum, gone from one end to the other. And Kit and I both have our own little agendas here. So I'm pushing mine and Kit is pushing <laughs> his. So we might as well come and join us again and we can do this and have a little bit of fun with the Cold War. Have fun. Can you say that? Have fun with the Cold War. But better than me saying, no, I'm not going to say it live. No, no, no. Never mind. Moving on. <laughs> can you remind our listeners how they can get hold of you, where they can find you? Uh, so I am the host of the weekly channel, the Cold War channel on YouTube, um, whether YouTube being the wonderful place that it is. Come join us, watch a couple of videos. We've been on the air for four and a half years now. We're, I think we're coming up to about 300 videos, um, on various different subjects, uh, through the Cold War. Um, come check us out. I read all the comments, uh, even the bad ones. That's a horror show in and of itself. Uh, and if anybody needs to shoot me an email, um, please do. It's, uh, the Cold War channel at gmail.com. Yes, all those interesting people you find on YouTube. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me and Kit. It's been an absolute pleasure. The pleasure has been all mine. Thank you very much. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.